Good morning. This morning we'll start in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 25. So the last verse in chapter 2 and continuing on to chapter 3, verse 7. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you heard David talk about the Reformation and churches across the nation are highlighting at least at some level this Reformation. Why do we do that? Why do we talk about old things? Why do we sometimes say these creeds at our church that are hundreds of years old? Why do we do that? We as Christians stand on the shoulders of those that come before us. We are here today because of men and women that gave their lives in a period of the, uh, called the Reformation for truths that we would think aren't that uh, controversial, like the Word of God being in the common language of the people, that's so you can read it. Um, we we want to highlight those things because the gospel doesn't pop up as a, in a vacuum in each generation. It is passed on. It is given away. It is shared. It is handed off. And so it's right from time to time to remember as a church, we are a people of history, an historical event, the resurrection, but also a people of history whose gospel has been handed down through the generations. It's good to be reminded of that from time to time. One more thing I want to also bring you uh, up to, uh, in front of you this morning. Is, I don't know if you noticed, but we've started streaming our services on Facebook, uh, and they're saved there as well. That's not so you can stay home, but if you happen to be sick or you uh, can't get out or something, it's a crazy day, we wanted to make you aware of that and say hi to everybody, anybody watching streaming. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, it's there uh, just to make you aware of that. And they're also there on Sunday's video. You can go back and watch them there if you missed a Sunday. Or uh, we have on our podcast as well the audio there. It's nice to be able to use technology in those ways. Well, it has been the million-dollar philosophical question throughout the ages. What is wrong with the world? If I polled us, we'd probably all have a different answer or a unique answer of some kind. And that question, people have pondered and thought, if we could just figure out what is wrong with the world, we could fix it. And all kinds of problems have been posed. Is the problem financial? Well, we just need to equal everything out financially. Is it educational? Well, if just those people, we get them the right education. Is it political? If we could just get all our people in power, then we'd fix the world. 
Is it self-image? That's been another one that's been put forward. We just got to get people to have a really healthy self-image of themselves. So is the opposite. No, no, no. We need to let people know they're really bad. Is it sexual? Oh, it's all that sexual oppression and repression. We just got to throw off those chains. Is it legal? If we just get the right laws in place, then we'd fix the world. We all know something's wrong with the world. Every human does. And everyone's got their theory and their solution. Well, as we left Adam and Eve last week, we left them in a world that looks quite a bit different than ours, didn't we? A perfect garden paradise. Perfect. The gloriously perfect couple living there in perfect peace. They are perfectly other-oriented like no other humans have ever been. Not selfish, but selfless. With this endless supply of great uh, choices and options in front of them. And then that intimate relationship with their God. All this they had in shameless intimacy together, represented by the fact, as we started with that verse today, they were both naked and not ashamed. Both naked and not ashamed. That is a concept totally foreign to us. Why? It was perfect. It was perfect. By the time we get to Paul in Romans, we see him saying things like this. Talk about a different world. I do not understand what I even do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot even carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. You sense his frustration? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that's living in me does it. Who do you relate to more? Perfect garden paradise where you want to run around naked or Paul? Probably Paul. <laughs> but he's so, he sounds so confused there, doesn't he? Almost kind of just unsure of himself. I do these things. I don't want to do them, yet I do them, and I don't want to, but I find myself doing them. Why am I doing it? Why do I give in to temptation to the, the things I don't want to do? I relate more to Paul. It's clear we left off last week in a world that doesn't look like ours. First, as I said, we got a world of clothes. We live in a world of clothes, don't we? Uh, but also with problems that they didn't have. Sin, temptation, great division, and fractures of financial and racial and class and uh, ethnicity and even regional. We just have divisions and fractures, political, you name it. It's a different world. This Sunday, we will take a look. We're going to take a look at the source of all our problems. All your problems. All of them. In the world, but also in your, our hearts. And what we're going to find is that the problems of temptation, the problems of sin, the things we struggle with, I do, but I don't want to do, they all follow a pattern. They all follow a pattern that we're going to see begin in the garden that introduced sin into the world. A pattern that asks us to question God's word, his goodness, and his position. Those things, God's word, his goodness, and his position. So this morning we're going to look, though, at four patterns. I just mentioned three of them. We're going to look at a fourth, four patterns that emerge from Genesis 3, 1 through 7. So hopefully you got your outline, a pen, if you'd like to fill in or take notes. Got your Bible and a smartphone, maybe tablet open to Genesis 3. As we look at this strange encounter, because it is strange, between Eve, a serpent, and Adam, the first pattern we see is the pattern of temptation asks us to question God's word. To question God's 
words. The first thing that emerges from this text, in these early verses especially, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Any tree in the garden. We're calling this a pattern this morning, because even though you see a personal tempter in that verse, and you see real people, Adam and Eve, making real choices, we don't want to make it impersonal, but we're calling it a pattern here because Genesis 3 sets up an entire worldview, a view of the world, and that what happens here in these patterns on a macrocosm level in the world is a pattern for the microcosm that plays out in your heart every time you're tempted. And every time you give in to temptation, we play out this big Genesis 3 worldview story at the level of our heart. That's why we're calling it a pattern. Because we too are in Genesis 3. So what's happening here? <laughs> All of a sudden, a talking snake shows up. It is pretty surreal. A talking snake shows up in here in the garden. And begins to question her. Now remember, this snake is a subordinate to Eve. So underneath, subordinate to Eve. Because she was given and Adam was given the responsibility to oversee creation and all created beings. And he comes to uh, attack. He's supposed to be a subordinate as they exercise dominion. Where did he come from? How did he get here? Moses doesn't even say. Did he just slither up next to her and say Eve? Did he fall out of the tree right in front of her and scare her to death? How did he get there? Hey, Eve. Well, Moses and the text that he wrote before us here, it doesn't really interest itself necessarily with telling us that. It's more interested in what he says. It doesn't really even tell us that. However, we do know from other places in the Bible that this serpent is Satan or we'll talk in a minute, inhabited by Satan. Revelation 12 says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. Here we get our setting. And his angels were thrown down with him. So the deceiver of the world, Satan, is probably here inhabiting or controlling a snake, part of God's created world. And coming up to Eve... He uses part of the natural creation to set a trap for Eve. And before she knows it, she's in the middle of this conversation with a snake. It is kind of, it is a bit surreal, as I said. A conversation, and, he's, and in this conversation, he's crafty, the verse says. He's shrewd, another word for it. And on its own, that word's not a negative word. It really means for being wary or being aware or knowing a, a danger lurks ahead. It's not really a bad quality. But here, Satan's using his craftiness for evil. He clearly is. And what's the pattern? What's the tactic he uses to attack God's word? Two things we're going to see in this pattern. Here's the first one. He is attacking. Satan questions God's word and attacks it by mockery more than by engagement with it, actually. With the text. With God's word. With what he said. More by mockery. Remember, up to this point... God's word, his word, has been the source of everything for Eve. A source of order, of life, the source of her mate, Adam. All enjoyment she has, all matter and space, all came from God's good word. She only knows it is good. 
That's been her entire experience and, of, and life. I mean, I don't know how long she's been alive at this point. Is it a day or years? Well, that's another debate, but that's all she knows, God's good word. And here he ta- attacks God's word, Satan does, with mockery. He doesn't flat out object to it. He could have. He doesn't even argue with it, really. He doesn't even deny that, there's God, that it is God's word. He more comes at it with a snarky mockery. Did God really say that? Come on, Eve. Are you serious? Did God, did he really say that? I don't know about you, but the popular phrase with my kids is when they hear something, they go, wait, what? Have you heard that? Like, wait, what? It's just like they all are doing that right now. It's passing around middle school. That tends to happen in their own little subcultures. But wait, what? That's kind of what I, that's the, the popped into my mind this week when I heard uh, saying, did God really say that? Wait, what? He's going for her heart. He's going for her emotions, going at her ego, her image more than her mind here. Come on. Don't tell me you still believe that. You still hold to that, and this is the pattern we see over and over and over again. Attacks against God's word, they really don't usually look like reasoned arguments. It comes more through <gasps> gasps, right, and drop jaws, <gasps> and wide eyes, and snickering. You believe what? Are you, you serious? You still hold to that? You know how backwards that sounds? You're on the wrong side of history, you bigot. I mean, those are the more of the things that we get. Those are more of the things, the attacks that come towards God's words. Do you see it? People aren't usually argued away from the faith. They're sneered out of it. Mockery. It's a primary pattern from the garden on. Sneering, snickering, gasps. <gasps> you believe what? And to hold up under that, to hold up under such a thing like that, you and I and our children are not only going to have to know God's word, but believe it so deep in your bones that when sneers come, you have the composure enough to say something like, you know, I, I kind of realize I see kind of what you're doing. You're wanting me to feel bad or maybe stupid for believing this, but you actually haven't engaged what I really believe. Why don't we talk about that first? Why don't you tell me why you believe what I believe is not true or possible? I mean, that's because that's really what's taking place. <gasps> that's not an argument. That's just trying to get like Satan's doing. Mockery more than engagement. That's the first what he does. Second thing we see is this. By revision, he attacks God's word more than um, denial. So the first one was by mockery more than engagement. The second thing we see is by revision more than denial. Revision's happening all over the place. What's revision? When you're, you're about to turn in a paper, you edit it. You change it. You're about to fire off an email. What's the wise thing to do? Read back over it. Revise it. Maybe take something out. Phrase something a little differently so it's, it, the tone is there. Revision's happening all over the place here in these little verses. Remember, the name for God. We've been calling God since chapter 2. Yahweh Elohim. The very first thing both Satan and Eve do is they revise God's name. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago that Yahweh Elohim is translated in English, Lord God. All over the place in chapters 2 through 4, the only places it's not used, Lord God, is here. Both Satan and Eve drop Yahweh, the personal, intimate, covenant name of God. Uh, Satan doesn't say, 
did Lord God actually say? He says, did God actually say? And Eve responds in verse 2. She doesn't say, did Lord God Yahweh say? No, she says, no, God said. They drop it. But we do the same thing too when we let the sins of Saturday night keep us away on a Sunday morning. You know what I mean by that? We run from God rather than to God when we sin. We hide from him and, and kind of, I can't be into I, You know, I got to step back. That's kind of what they're doing. They revise his name as they head in deeper into this temptation. They also revise his words. God had said you can eat from every tree, every tree except one. And here Satan asks, it sounds like an innocent question, but he revises it. Did God say you can't eat from any tree? He revises what sounds like a simple question and opens up for Eve for the first time in her entire life the possibility for her to question and judge God's good word. He's removing roadblocks for her. He's opening up the way and also suggesting by doing it with that question that God's really selfish and stingy. And she had the chance in that moment to put him in his place. But instead, you know what she does in her answer? She revises too. She changes God's word. Take a look at it. She minimized it. She added to it. She softened it. Uh, There's the quote from uh, Eve's response there. God said, you know, he provided every tree but one. Eve minimizes that and says, well, we may eat of the fruit trees. She, she, She minimizes. It's already happening in her heart. Minimizing God's provision for her. He said all but one. She says, well, we can eat from the trees. She adds to it. God just said, eat from any tree, but don't eat that one. Eve Eve adds to it what? Or touch it. It's like she's saying he's harsh already in her heart. It's like like a live wire. If I just touch it, I'm going to be zapped. Kind of what Eve was saying. No, no, he said just don't eat it. She adds to it with touch it. But she also softens the punishment. God said you will surely die. And she says, do you hear it in her voice? Lest you die. It's sort of a step back from surely. And now she is in real danger. Do you see this? If we minimize, if we add to, if we soften God's good word to us, to you in your personal life, our church, there is real danger. Real danger comes. Temptation And so you see Eve floundering with it and and minimizing and adding and softening it. And so the question for us is, do you know God's word? Is it that, uh, have that primary place in your life? Do you realize that what it says is good and that you can trust it and that we should follow it? But it's the pattern we sometimes follow too, especially when temptation comes. Don't you like to minimize or add to, or kind of soften where God is at on something, or what he says the consequences are. You've asked me to forgive God, forgive him. I know as your word says it, you said forgive him, but I think he understands in this, at least this case, right? He kind of gets it. I mean, did he really say 70 times 7? Is that possible that Jesus really meant that? And God, you know, he doesn't know how bad this hurts anyways. He, he, He could not know how bad this hurts. That's kind of how it plays out sometimes, isn't it? He couldn't have possibly meant forgive 
And unless you do, you won't be forgiven. Could God, Jesus have meant that? We do this, don't we? We're, we're revisionists with God's word, especially when it serves our own purpose, our desires, and sometimes even our own sinful hearts. We've got to be aware of that. It's the first thing that Satan, the enemy, loves to use, attacking God's word through mockery and through revising it. Let's look at the second pattern, because that's the first. There's another one here. The second pattern of temptation. Sorry, I have patter up there. That's not right. Pattern of temptation. Nobody told me in first service. Usually they do. The pattern of temptation asks us to question God's goodness. God's goodness. Satan's already done it in, in saying, oh, you know, did he, you're not, can you not eat from the trees? But he's much more intent now. He asks her to question God's goodness. When he says to her, you will not die. You're not going to die. In fact, you do this thing, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God. Here's what's going on. He's saying, Eve, there's a whole horizon out there of, 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 of unforeseen pleasure just waiting for you. And if you obey God in this thing, you'll never get to experience. He just wants to keep you in your place. How dare he? How dare he do that to you? You kind of insert, if you wanted, every advertising slogan that's ever come kind of from that line of thought. You deserve a break today, Eve. Have it your way, Eve. Broadcast yourself, Eve. That's YouTube. You be you. It's everywhere you want to be. You know those slogans. You probably heard them. And cue that inner dialogue for Eve. Yeah, or us. Yeah. Those people want to keep the good things from me. They don't know what I need. They don't know what I deserve. They don't know what I've worked for. They want to hold me back. Or God wants to hold me back. It's incredible. Satan's really crafty here, isn't he? He doesn't go after God's existence. He could have, Eve, this God you want to serve, he doesn't even exist. He doesn't do that. He doesn't really go after the law and say, God never said that. He goes after God's character. He goes after God's goodness. He challenges Eve by challenging the love and grace and mercy and character behind God, and not only God, but behind the prohibition with the tree. It was goodness that motivated that. By saying to her this, you can't trust his character, so you better trust yourself. That's actually what Satan's doing here. You can't trust God's character, so you must trust yourself. Take your own life into your hands, Eve. It's your destiny. Reach out and grab that fruit and eat it. It's a pattern of lie that was in Eve's heart, but it's also in the heart of every human being since then. And it's what we question, actually, every time we give in to temptation. We question God's goodness every time we give in. Yeah, I know God says don't blow up in anger. Oh, man, but it's such a release, isn't it? It feels so good to finally let it out. I know he says forgive people, but, you know, it feels pretty good to hold on to some things, too. In the depths of my heart, it feels good. Can he really want me to forgive? Nah, it feels too good. I know he says be generous with my money and my time. I get all that. But yeah, it's my time. It's me time. I want it for me. 
The temptation underneath the sin is that if I obey, I won't be happy. If I obey, I won't be happy. And the temptation actually wouldn't even be there if we absolutely trusted God's goodness. Because we would know it's never just about a rule. It's never just about don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. It's God, God's goodness behind those rules that we, that we doubt and that Satan wants us to doubt. His goodness is behind every prohibition. His goodness through every trial. His goodness through every loss in life. And Satan knew it and he went right to the heart of her trust in God's fatherly love for her. He loves to do that. He loves to do that. So we do it our way then. We lost the trust and we go, well, I got to take the things into my own hands then. We do it our way and we don't trust his goodness and we end up sinning. We don't trust it, so we end up sinning. But you know what's interesting? You can have the same, very same logic and mistrust of God and use it for good in a good way in life. We tend to think it just looks like that. And I think in the church, maybe we struggle a little more with not trusting God, even with our, with our goodness, with who we are and reputation. I love the author Flannery O'Connor. I've maybe mentioned this before. I, I went back and checked. I don't think I have. But this novel, Wise Blood, a short novel she wrote, she writes about this character. His name was Hazel Motts. He was this young man who grew up, and his grandfather that he grew up under was this fiery preacher of the gospel. And he grew up listening to his grandfather preach and ends up not a believer, but an atheist who sets up this street-preaching atheist religion, actually. But he, he recounts in the, the, the book, he remembered growing up hearing his grandfather preach. And how his grandfather in his sermons would say, Jesus died for you, for your sins, just trust him. And instead of coming to it in trust and love, he was terrified of it in the book. He was terrified of it. He didn't trust Jesus, and Jesus in his mind was always just chasing him down behind each tree, jumping out, trying to get him. And so he decided... Well, he knew he couldn't go off to avoid God and mistrust God in, in the way of maybe the, the younger prodigal son. He decided, you know what? The way to avoid my need of God is to be really good. Here's how she describes him. We got it coming up. The quote from the book. There we go. There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Avoid sin, avoid Jesus. What's she saying? A moralist, a good person, can be just as far away and mistrusting God's grace and his need of grace as the rebel sinner that goes off and lives it up. Both of them can mistrust and, and miss the entire gospel and the God of the center of it. The sinner and the saint they can both not be trusting God's goodness and his love and his grace and their need of him. And when Eve's trust of the heavenly father was broken, do you know what happened? That break of trust reverberated throughout the entire world and every heart, almost like creation probably shuddered in that moment. And Adam, when he joined her, throughout history, and when this happens, we get to this moment in the text, you know what we're left with? We're kind of just left with Adam and Eve's heart. Because Satan's gone. He's done his job. He's probably slithered away. 
He's removed the barriers of sin by asking her to question God's word and goodness. And his job's done. She was convinced she wouldn't be punished, that God was holding her back from her godhood, and she needed this to be happy. And so we get to our third pattern of what happens now. The pattern of temptation is to turn God's position upside down, to flip the world on its head. Look at verse 6 with me. So Satan's gone from this scene. He said his last line, and verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Her senses were engaged, the verse describes. It'd be good for tasting. Taste, good. Uh, it would be good for seeing. It was beautiful. She saw it. It was beautiful. And good for thinking. It'll, make, it'll give me something I don't quite have, this knowledge, wisdom. Or put another way, it was physically attractive in the taste. It was beautifully attract, beautiful and attractive emotionally as she saw it. And then spiritual. It'll fulfill some spiritual needs, all those things. It'll give me this, this wisdom. I need these fulfilled. First John, probably commenting on this very same uh, thing, said, For that in all that is in the world... Desires of the flesh, there's the taste it. The desires of the eyes, it looked really good. And the pride of life, there's the spiritual hubris that Adam and Eve have. I got to have this knowledge. It's not from the Father, but from this, the world. And it happened so quick there, doesn't it? It's almost like uh, unsensational, uneventful, banal, simple. Everyone describe it. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Did you notice that? Once the barriers are removed, it just, the floodgate is open, the temptation happens, and they take the tree, and they just eat it. What was their sin, do you think? I, I mean, what did they do that was so wrong? They just ate a tree. Lots of people have, done, have had that question. Like, it just seems kind of ridiculous. They just ate a tree. What's so bad about a tree? They didn't murder somebody. They just ate a tree. Why is that sin such a big deal that Paul will later apply it with these words from Romans? Sin came into the world through one man. This is this act. This is cosmic. And death through sin and death spread to all men because all sin. I mean, he takes this, Paul takes this really seriously, this little bite of the tree. Well, what if God had told them? What if he had? If he just said, hey, here's why. Here's why this is such a big deal and why you shouldn't do this. Now, if you eat the tree, Adam and Eve, uh, you can't imagine it right now, but uh, the sin and the horror and the pain it will cause every human being for the rest of history. And death will spread to all. D do you hear me, Adam and Eve? So, you know, just don't eat that tree because if you do, billions of bad things will happen to billions of people. He probably could have done that. But if he would have done that at that moment, they would have had another reason to obey than just because he was God. I mean, they would have obeyed to, to avoid the bad results and in some way kind of still been in control of the situation. Yeah, we've, thank you, God. We will take that under advisement. We'll get back to you in a little bit. We're going to think that and mull that over. We're going to weigh our options. Oh, you know what? We've decided the cost is not worth it. We're going to obey, God. He didn't give them a reason because he had already set up this world and given them everything they need, 
everything they could possibly want. He'd shown them his goodness. He'd given them the gift of life in this world, and he had set up that one tree to remind them, to orient them to this reality. I am God. You are not. Obey me just because I'm God. Just because I'm God. I don't have to give you all the whys behind it. And there's a lot, and it's destructive, but obey me, Adam and Eve, just because I'm God. Treat me as God, or go ahead and try it to be God of your own life. You see, at the heart of this sin was not just a bite of a tree, a bite of, a bite of fruit. It was the disordering of the entire world. Here's what happened. We put ourselves in God's place. That is what's happening here. It's cosmic treason. Adam and Eve want to be God, and in so doing, dethrone the true God. It's cosmic treason, it's been called by theologians and commentators. Take a look at this slide here. Now, as we look at this, I am not suggesting, I want you to hear this, that if God is the center as we go out from the circles, that woman is further from God or has further access to God or is farther away or that he loves her any less. That's not what I'm suggesting. But these, I have a slide here because there was an order that we've been talking about these last few weeks that God set up as he created, as he made man and woman. And he was to be the center of that world and their world and their life and their hearts. And Adam was to be a unique leader, not to oppress but to sacrificially love his bride and serve her and point her to their maker. And Eve was to be there as a helper, combined and joining, making this first married couple that would glorify God in this perfect paradise. And in this moment, that order is absolutely turned upside down. God doesn't initiate here. Satan does. He starts this dialogue. And he doesn't go to the man who's supposed to protect and care for and watch out for this new family. He goes to Eve. And he tells Eve. And then Adam, instead of listening to God, he listens to his wife in this. And the whole thing gets turned upside down. And did you catch it? Adam was there. Adam was there. He is silent in the dialogue, but he is there. He is there. Verse 6 says it. Look at it. Her husband who was with her. And Satan, when he says you, it's, uh, Moses writes in the plural you. He's not just speaking to one person. Adam was there. He lets her eat, thinking that she would instantly die with a bite. Talk about a dereliction of duty. He lets her bite it. I'll see what happens. I don't know what was going through his mind. Maybe that's what it was. And then God is nowhere referenced. He's just, he's not there. He's referenced, but negatively, and they don't cry out to him. Nothing happens with God. The sin was putting themselves in the place of God. That was the sin. They turned up the whole order upside down, the whole order of the world. And this is the problem of the world. We put ourselves in God's place. It's the fundamental mistrust of the human heart. It started with our ancestors long ago, and it's still there. What does it look like? God doesn't have this. There's no way he's got this. He is not going to take care of this. I've never seen anything like this come into my life. He has not got this. You know what? I better take over. I better do God's job. Who knows where he is anyways. He probably doesn't even really care I'm going through this. I better figure this out my own way. That's the dialogue we run through over and over again. And when we do that and then we act on it, we, over and over again, we do exactly the thing the serpent asked us to, asked Eve to. We question his goodness. 
his character. We turn the world upside down and put ourselves in his place. You see, it's never about just breaking a rule. It's never just, I mean, we just get so caught up in rules, even as Christians. The rules, the rules, the rules, the rules. What's underneath the rules? When we break them, our heart's saying, I want to be God. I know what's best for me, not him. And that's what's taking place here. How does this work as something as simple with, as with let's just talk anxiety. Now, anxiety can be a sin. It can also not, we're not speaking about biochemical, the fall that's affected the body and biochemical, but anxiety can be a sin too. Worry. Why do we worry? I got a really wonderful plan for my life. I know how it should go. I know what should happen in the next moment. I know how she, I know how he should respond to me in that moment. And then something happens outside of your plan, outside of my plan. And, well, I didn't see that coming. And, and I'm sure God didn't see it either. And he's not going to come through on this one. Oh, no, it's, I can just see how this is going to happen. It's going to get worse. It's like the dominoes falling over. It's a house of cards. It's only going to get worse. What should I do? Do you see how at the core of every sin, it's not just a rule. It's a basic mistrust in God's goodness, and it's us trading ourselves, our place with God. Cosmic trees, and that's the tree. So what do you do in that moment? You're really worried, and your palms are sweating, and your heart's racing. I used to get anxiety attacks in my early 20s. I ended up in the ER a couple times. Maybe you can relate. What do you do in those moments? You preach to yourself. God knows. He is God. I am not. You step back from the situation. You see it through the lens of the gospel. You remember how loved you are. And what happens? You start to breathe again. Doesn't mean it instantly, magically poof, is gone. But you keep talking to yourself, you keep preaching to yourself, you keep speaking to yourself the truth, or others around you. That's why we gathered, right? As a community. Who am I? Who is God? What do I know to be true? He's not a, 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 a wicked man in the sky. He loves me. He cares. He died for me. And all of a sudden we begin to calm down. You speak it till you hear it. Even when it doesn't feel like it, I'm going to obey because he's God. But they didn't, did they? They didn't obey. Sometimes we don't. We know that too. What do they do? They hide in shame. And many times we do as well. And so we got to make sure we have this final pattern. Here is the fourth one. The ultimate pattern is restored when he puts himself in our place. What happens after this fall, this first sin? Man, did they ever have a new knowledge? They did. They got what they were asking for. It's probably the experience of evil. Theologians have questioned what actually was the knowledge of good and evil. It's less important to the text, but they got it. The experience of evil. Their eyes were opened. The trust they'd had with their father was broken. We didn't read it this morning, but look at verse 8 with me. They sewed these fig leaves together in seven. They realized they were naked. And then... They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool of the day. And, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God. There's his name again. Among the trees of the garden. They saw the fruit. They ate the fruit. And now they see their nakedness and they hide in shame. And our story is going to begin there in verse 8 next week. But what happens here? 
God comes looking for them. He comes seeking them. He comes looking for them. God initiates in loving grace. They hide in shame. He comes to look for them in love. That's what he does. Where are you? Where are you? He knows, doesn't he? But don't each and every one of us want to hear, oh, welcome home. I've been been waiting for you. Oh, where have you been? Welcome back. We run from him. We don't like what we find there. We mistrust, but he comes after us. He came after them. Where are you? Where are you? And so begins here in this moment the great salvation of humanity. God initiating, God seeking, God coming to us to trade places with us. That's what's happening. We put ourselves in the middle. We put ourselves in the throne. We claim the place that's rightfully God, God's. And what does he do? He comes in Jesus Christ to find us. He takes on a body. He dies on a tree. He comes to earth and he cries out, where are you? Where are you? And what did we do? We ran. We hid. We hated the light, the Gospel of John says. And Jesus still comes and takes your place on the cross. He puts himself into the center of God's wrath for you. He trades places with you so that you can be brought back into God's heart. That's the pattern of the gospel. That's the fourth pattern, the pattern that breaks the sinful pattern that starts here when it's accepted and believed and trusted in faith. Paul also knew this one. He knew how serious the sin was, but he also knew this fourth pattern. He said in Romans 5, For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned throughout that one man, it's passed on. We're going to talk about that next week. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And if he was willing to do that, to trade places with you, can he not be trusted? Trusted when it looks like your way is better than his way? Trusted when obedience looks insane? Those people from the Reformation we referenced today, some of them died for obedience and things that we would have been like, really? Keep having the word of God in the language of the people. Obedience looked insane. Or maybe when disobedience just feels better. Can it be trusted when it looks like you're, you're on your own in this life? You better take it into your own hands. You have to see the God-man, Jesus Christ, trading places with you. And you got to see it a lot. you got to see it over and over again in your heart. We put ourselves on the throne. We put ourselves in God's place. He puts himself on the cross. we got to relive it, rethink it, re-embrace this fourth pattern daily, the pattern of the gospel, that Jesus put himself in your place. Would you pray with me? Lord, there's a, there's a somberness in this passage as we realize that every pain we've ever had, every sorrow we've ever had, every loss we've ever had, the seeds in, of those were in this first choice of Adam and Eve. 
So there is sorrow in this passage. There's mourning in this passage. And yet there's a hint of the gospel. There's a hint of your initiating grace and love and mercy that came looking for them, even though they had hidden in shame. And so today, Jesus, let us see that fourth pattern, the pattern of you putting yourself in our place when we so often put ourselves in yours. Putting yourself in the place of God's wrath in the center of it so we could be brought back into the heart of our maker and back into fellowship and walk out clothed in righteousness and stand before you unashamed. We wait for that day. Bring it soon. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. In your name we pray, amen.